Welcome, everybody, to Adjusted. This is a claims podcast for workers' compensation enthusiasts. I'm your host, Greg Hamlin, uh, coming at you from beautiful Birmingham, Alabama. And with me is my guest host today, Matt Murphy. Matt, can you say hi to everybody? Hello, everybody. Good, good to be here with the Hambone. <laughs> Matt is our uh, vice president and managing actuary at Berkeley Industrial Comp. So glad to have him with us. And then with us today, we have our special guest, Carl Van, who is the president of the International Institute of Insurance. Is that right? Did I say that right, Carl? Close. International Insurance Institute. Excellent. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> well, we're glad you're with us, Carl. Thank you. Uh, I was just mentioning before we got started, I, I first met Carl probably then eight to 10 years ago when I was an adjuster, and he came and trained our staff at Liberty Mutual and, on negotiations training. And as an adjuster, you sit through, I don't know how many trainings, and I couldn't remember hardly any of them, but I certainly remembered that one and uh, eventually led to me when I became a leader going back and looking at the the book you wrote, Eight Characteristics of an uh, Awesome Adjuster. So I wanted to talk about that some today, but I also wanted just to start, Carl, by having you tell us a little bit about how you got into the insurance industry. Sure. A lot of people fell into the insurance business, but uh, not me. I knew I was going to be in claims my whole life. Uh, seven years old, I used to pray at my little adjuster bed. Uh, <laughs> make me a great claims person. Get uh, out of here. <laughs> yeah. Well, my degree is in insurance. So, but actually how, to be honest, uh, my wife at the time uh, got a job at 20th Century Insurance in Century City. And I was working at the phone company and we couldn't afford two cars. So one of us had to quit and go see if they can get a job at the other person's uh, job. And sure enough, I got a job at 20th Century. So that's how I got into the insurance business. But uh, I was going to night school and I did switch my major to insurance once I got there and liked it and realized this was going to be my career. That's when I really started focusing on claims and turning insurance into my into my career was once I landed there. That's excellent. So did you what what line did you start in, Carl? Uh, auto. I was actually, well, to be perfectly honest, I started I couldn't uh, get a job as an adjuster, as, as mentions in the book, because uh, I didn't have a degree yet. So I started off in the fire room. So I started off in the fire room making photocopies. And finally got my big break to take uh, first notice of loss supports. And then from there became a uh, property damage adjuster, then Severo, then bodily injury, and just kind of moved on. Well, so for those people who haven't done auto, uh, I, I'm in a general liability for a short window. And I always tell the work comp people, uh, people get very upset about their car. If, they, if you think people get upset about their bodies, you haven't seen somebody who lost their vehicle. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like you're performing surgery on a family member or something. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, we're glad to have you with us. Thank you. So what led to you deciding to teach others in the insurance industry? You told us a little bit about how you started out, but how did you decide that you love teaching and wanted to get into that part of it? Well, I was a, went from claims adjuster to supervisor to manager, regional manager, division manager, you know, up the ranks. So I really liked the business of claims. But I found when I was a division manager that I was a little unhappy with the level of expertise people had coming back from the training department. And they came back with, okay, they had some ideas, but they didn't know how to apply it. So I started holding my own mini training classes in my office for those people when they came back. To, to teach them, okay, but this is how you really do it, okay? 
Um, you know, whether it's customer service or time management or negotiations or just, you know, writing a reservation rights letter, it seemed in every case I had to teach them the way we really do it uh, versus the way they kind of been taught to do it with a general overview. And then a couple of branch managers started hearing about what I was doing and calling me up saying, hey, can I send my people over to you when you do these training classes? <laughs> and then pretty soon I was running this underground railroad training courses, uh, you know, for, uh, for our whole division. And I realized I liked it. I really did. I liked, I liked the feeling of helping people. And when people came up afterward and told me this is going to help me, that was enough. That, that, was, that was enough, you know, feel good moment for me to realize, you know, I really do want this to be my career. So I started International Insurance Institute 23 years ago, and, and we've been busy training claims professionals here in the United States, Canada, UK. I was in Australia a couple of years ago and uh, just love it. Absolutely. Let me ask. Let me ask you this: When you started out, did you have a like a good mentor or or somebody who you know led you on that teaching path? Somebody that you could emulate in a lot of those things, or was it just really picked up through the work? There, there was nobody who made the transition from claims management or executive to training. Nobody. So mm-hmm. no, there wasn't any. I had, of course, I had some good mentors in the claims business. Uh, you know, I had a great regional manager when I was a branch manager. They taught me the business of claims and how to look at things from a client's perspective, but unfortunately I did not have one in training. I was, I was the lone wolf. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I can, I can sort of uh, empathize with that. Uh, I'm from New Orleans where, where you live now. And, uh, you know, I, I rolled out of undergraduate. I was a physics major actually coming back. Didn't, didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, ended up working for a property casualty sure insurer. Uh, didn't even know what actuarial exams were really when I started. Uh, but they said, Hey, you know, calculus, you can probably take these things and and do it. And so I started to take those exams on my own. So I can, I can empathize with the lone wolf feeling of, uh, I don't really have anybody to look up to here. I'm like going to an online forum, uh, to, you know, try to say, Hey, how was the test today? Cause, uh, you know, I remember sometimes driving to the Louisiana department of insurance to take my exams to be proctored. And I was the only person there. So. Uh, interesting, interesting stuff. Well, even when I started International Insurance Institute, uh, everybody, everybody said this will not work. The insurance companies will not hire someone from the outside to train their staff. They already have training departments. So your only market is for the tiny little insurance carriers that don't have a training department. Well, within the first year, we were being hired by national carriers. And like you just mentioned, you had Liberty Mutual 10 years ago. So it was even within the first year or two, we were getting national carriers saying, all right, this person, Carl and and his team, they're delivering something we don't have real life training for people to actually teach them how to do their job better. And, uh, basically it's been a formula for us for the last 23 years. It's been pretty successful. And, and, and still today we have national carriers calling us up to train their staff for that reason, because it, because it hits home. It's material written by claims people for claims people. So 23 years, right? Like this mm-hmm. is, let's go back to 1998, right? This is before the advent of social media, right? Like <laughs> so much has changed. And I, I hear, you know, you say you've had this formula for 23 years. Has it needed to be iterated on or some of these things? I mean, look, study for actuarial exams. I'm reading something somebody wrote on workers' compensation in 1950, and it's still applicable <laughs> today. Yeah. What, what are your thoughts I, on that? 
Uh, well, my thoughts are that's why I stay away from technical stuff. I stay away from legal updates that have to be changed every year. But the, the things that we like to teach on, you know, customer service, critical thinking, business writing, professionalism, um, empathy and listening. These are, you know, the, these ideas and concepts just haven't changed and they usually don't change. The only thing that changes the media that people use. So sometimes we do have to talk about how to send a professional text message as opposed to send a professional letter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But the, the concept of how people want to be treated and what we're here to do, we're here to help people. We're in the business of helping people. That hasn't changed. You know, it's, it's still a matter of, of showing people that that's what our ultimate goal is. We're in the business of helping people where they had something bad happen to them. You know, they didn't want it. They didn't like it. They didn't ask for it. And we're here to help them. And so none of that has changed and how people like to be treated with respect and, and acknowledged and, you know, providing empathy to people that hasn't changed. I really like what you said there. And I think that's one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading the book and, and I've even used it for some trainings over the years of the eight characteristics of an awesome adjuster was how much emphasis you put on customer service and helping people. And I think sometimes that gets lost in the insurance world. I'm not sure why. What are your thoughts? Why, why is that that, you know, that maybe the, the heart sometimes gets removed from uh, adjusting? Well, in, in one of the books I wrote, um, I, I talk about um, the story called Oh, Hershey's New. And it's a real story. I was on a plane and uh, this one flight attendant, I was in first class because I got upgraded, lucky me. And she was being extra bossy. She's pushing people around. You know, that has to be on. That can't be there. This is all has to be over here. You have to sit down, seatbelt on, just bossing people around. And finally, I said, you know, I think your customer service skills really need some improvement. <laughs> and she says, of course, the other people in the cabin are going, oh, you know, they're all scared. And um, she says, well, I'm here mainly for your safety, sir. And, and as soon as she said that, I'm here for your safety, sir, I realized, Customer service isn't her concern. She's here for safety, that she actually believes this. So she can push people around and be rude because that's what she thinks her job is. And so I asked her, I said, well, how come the flight attendant back there in coach? How come she's being friendly? How come she's being nice? She's doing the same job you are. How come? She looks back at that flight attendant and the coach and she goes, oh, her? She's new. And that's the title of that chapter. And, and I mentioned that because sometimes... The more experienced we get, the more technically strong we get, we pride ourselves on how much we know and how technical we are and how nobody can you know, fool us and how we know every exclusion, every policy or whatever it is, every rule under every workers' comp state statute. So we tend to pride ourselves on how technically strong we are and we forget what we're actually here to do. And so I think as people get their experience grows and they become technically strong, they tend to pride themselves on that and they forget. They basically forget at the, at the core of it, we're in the business of helping people, which is oftentimes why the new people, <laughs> although not, they're not technically, technically strong, will do actually quite a bit better job of providing empathy and customer service than people have been doing it for 15 years, when it should be the exact opposite. Somebody who's been around 15 years should know that we're here to help people and providing empathy and acknowledgement is part of this job that we do. But it gets pushed aside because the technical aspect becomes so important. Do you think one of the problems is that the insured or or the claimant uh, themselves doesn't know that you're there to help? Right. Like, so how do you get past the boogeyman sort of, you know, who's got a lower 
approval rating, insurance companies or Congress, right? Like, how, how do you get past <laughs> that first part um, to show that empathy? Well, I agree. And there's no doubt whether or not it's an injured worker, a claimant or insured, doesn't much matter, uh, whatever line of business, they start off many times thinking we're trying to cheat them. They start off that way. Mm -hmm. uh, so it becomes a matter of seeing if you can gain their trust right away. And sometimes it's a matter of just, you know, when you talk to people, instead of saying, I've been assigned to handle your claim, I'll be helping you with your claim. You know, instead of saying, well, we don't pay that, uh, let me help explain why that's excluded. Instead of saying, it sounds like you're confused, let me help make sure we clear this issue up for you. It's just a matter of believing that you're here to help. And if you believe that, if that's your attitude, which is one of the characteristics in the book, if your attitude is, I'm here to help, you will say those things that are consistent with that. Your attitude drives your performance. So yes, there are people who start off that way, but they can be converted. And instead of saying, we're going to pay you what we owe, I want to help make sure you get what you're entitled to. And if you believe you're on someone's side, you will say things that are very consistent with, with being on their side. And you can win them over rather quickly that way. As a matter of fact, I, just, I was talking to an adjuster just recently, and he couldn't get a claimant to give him a recorded statement. And the claimant said, well, no matter what I say, you'll just use it against me. And so the adjuster said, well, why should we do why should Why would we do that? And they got into an argument. So I just said, well, instead of saying, you know, why would we do that? When he says, I don't want to give you a statement because you're going to use it against me. Why not just say, you know what, if you don't want to give me a statement because you're concerned I'm going to use it against you, I understand that that makes sense. No one wants to end up on the short end of the stick. You know what? You're right. It is our policyholder, but you're our customer too. By the fact that you got involved in an accident with our, our customer, that makes you our customer. And you know what? There's always two sides to every story and you're entitled to have your say. And so I, I was just telling the judge, you know, just treat him like a customer. Let him know you, you're a customer too. Because right now he's saying he's not going to cooperate because he thinks you're biased. Well, show him you're not. Show him, hey, there's two sides to every story. And you're our customer too. You're entitled to have a say. And so and I just, I, that's what I go back to. Just show, if you really believe you're on people's sides, then you will say things that are consistent with that. That's great. That's really, you know, I think, and I think, you know, some of the things we're trying to do at a Berkeley Industrial Comp really go in line with that. Uh, in fact, some of the people I've hired to be adjusters over the, the short time frame come from customer service industry for that very reason. Because I think, you know, they have a different perspective. We hired a, a, a guy who was working for Publix, which in the South is known for their white glove treatment at the grocery store, right? right. And he was their customer service guy. And when I interviewed him, it was really clear that he had those same skills and they actually translate. But it's interesting that the insurance industry usually looks at business or criminal justice or some of those avenues and, and the customer service piece can, can be forgotten in that. Yeah. You know, I have found that too. I would rather hire someone who's really focused on customer service because I can teach that person how to write an estimate. <laughs> but I take a guy <laughs> right. from the body shop. I just have a lot harder time teaching the guy from the body shop to provide great customer service. So yeah, I'd much rather start off with the core characteristic, which is the reason we wrote the book in the first place. So let's start off with the right person and teach them the technical skills they need rather than spend a lot of time doing the opposite. Pick people who have some technical skills and then trying to teach them that we're in the customer service business. That's a lot harder to do. It really is. When I was reading your book, one of, I think one of my favorite parts that I've used over and over and over again has to do with initiative. And how do you teach initiative? Because it, it, in, in the very thought of trying to teach initiative, you're really taking away initiative. 
Right. And so I loved how you tackle that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. That comes up in the teaching coaching class lots of times because managers say, well, I teach my adjusters initially because I always tell them to go off and look for an answer before they come to me. And I'll tell you, I'll tell them, well, then that's not an initiative. It's just carrying out your orders. So how do you teach it? The idea is to make, to, to make someone feel obligated to do something that they wouldn't normally do. So for managers, what I do is I tell them, okay, let's say an adjuster comes to you and says, hey, you know, is med pay subrogatable in California, whatever it is. Just ask them, okay, I'll be happy to talk to you, but what extra steps did you take to find the answer before you came to me? And if the answer is nothing, give them the answer. There, okay, yes, yes, it is or no, it isn't. And they, that always blows their minds. They think, well, no, 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 you shouldn't tell them. No, you should, because you got to give them something that they didn't deserve. Now, the next time they come to you and ask another question, well, should we pay this, ex- you know, on this exclusion? Does this exclusion apply? Ask them the same question. What extra steps did you take before you came to me to find the answer? And if the answer is nothing, give them the answer and then move on. Pretty soon, what's going to happen? After two or three or four times, this person's going to know that when they come to you, you're going to ask them what extra steps did they take? And pretty soon it's going to dawn on them to do something. And pretty soon they're going to say, well, I checked the NFC, FCNS books. Okay, good. All right, here you go. Let's, go. let's go through it. And if you keep doing that, and pretty soon after six or seven times, you ask them what extra steps did they take? And they say, well, I checked the FCNS books. You can say, well, look, you always check the FCNS books. <laughs> what extra steps did you take? And pretty soon they're going to catch on that they need to do something else. And pretty soon after about six months, when they come to you, they're going to say, okay, I checked with the senior adjuster. I checked with in-house counsel. I checked the FCNS books. You know, I Googled the case law. And pretty soon they'll do, do all the things that they're going to need to do to find the answer. And by the way, by that time, they're going to come to you a lot less often because they're going to be finding the answers in the meantime. So for managers, you can't tell people to take initiative. The best you can do is make them feel obligated to want to take the initiative. And the only way you can make someone feel obligated is give them something they don't deserve. Give them the answer. They didn't do anything. Okay, here's your answer. You know, pretty kind of like you buy you buy a friend lunch. You go out to lunch with a friend. You buy lunch. I'll pick up lunch this time. Well, next time they might expect to pick up lunch. Now, there's some people you can buy them lunch 19 times in a row, and they'll never <laughs> pick up on that. Then my suggestion to the managers: Well, then forget it. Initiative is not in them. Teach them how to write a reservation rights letter or something because they're never going to get initiative. So for the employees themselves, what I do is I tell them, ask, the, say, ask yourself the same question. Next time you have a question, you go to your boss, ask yourself, what extra steps did I take to find the answer on my own? And if the answer is nothing and you feel okay with it, go ask your, your supervisor. But pretty soon, even after two or three times, you can make yourself feel obligated to do something before you go to your supervisor. And you know what? Even if, even if your answer is all wrong. Even if you go to your supervisor and say, okay, I checked with legal and I checked this and I went here and I got this and here's what I think we should do. Even if it's completely wrong, your manager will still appreciate the fact that you take, you know, you took those extra steps. So initiative without a doubt of, of the eight characteristics is the hardest one to teach. <laughs> some people have it, some people don't. Uh, but you can, you can bring it out in almost everybody by, by making them feel obligated but now keep in mind, if a manager says, okay, before you come to me, I want you to check these things, then that's not an initiative. Right. Because they're just following out what you asked them to do. Right. And, and you know what? For some people, that's okay. It really is. Hey, for some managers, as long as they do what I tell them to do, I'm thrilled. Okay, good. Then you don't need initiative. So can I ask you there, you know, you kind of hinted at it. Is there an ideal candidate? Like how, how teachable are some of these skills or is it just like sort of inherent? Like these people were born with X, Y, and Z, right? Like, can I teach initiative? Can I teach empathy? 
or do you just kind of see it sometimes and say, okay, I can, I can teach them the particulars of this job, but I'm actually kind of looking for a worldview or something that was ingrained in them at an early age. Well, yeah, they're all teachable, just what degrees. And the more you start off, if you start off with someone who has those characteristics, you're much better off than trying to teach them because they're very hard to teach. So yes, but there are certain basic things you can do in an interview to, to find those people. So one thing we do is we, we divide people into givers and takers. Okay. Um, takers are people that, you know, no matter what you say to them, if they did something wrong, they've got an excuse. You know, you did this wrong. Oh, well, I wasn't trained. Well, we have training for you. Oh, do I have to go? You know, uh, <laughs> they don't like to volunteer. They're always worried about fairness. Matter of fact, they'll always say, well, how come I had three claims and, you know, she only got two. That's not fair. They're always preoccupied with fairness. Well, givers, they tend to be team players. They don't mind giving a little bit extra. They volunteer for assignments. You know, they like to be involved. Takers actually, it bothers them when people smile. If they see someone in an office smiling, that annoys them. They'll actually go over and what are you so happy about? You know, because it bothers them <laughs> somebody's happy and they're not. Um, well, givers, you know, they like to, they like to see people smile. So they like to volunteer and give extra. So what we do is we give them, uh, we give managers questions to ask. So let's say you ask somebody in an interview, uh, what would you do if your manager kept giving you the most difficult files? Now, if the person says, well, I'd ask why I have to get all the tough files. That's probably a taker because they're concerned about fairness. But somebody says, I don't know, I guess I'd ask them if they want me to train the other people. That's probably a giver. Right. You ask them, uh, what would you do if, if a customer made a complaint about someone in your department? And the person says, well, I'd find out who it was and tell them to write to their supervisor. That's probably a taker. <laughs> if someone says, well, I'd find out what I could do to help them, see if I can smooth the situation over. That's probably a giver. So the idea is you, what you do is you ask a bunch of neutral questions and then you simply decide, is this person more of a giver or are they more of a taker? And my advice is just don't hire the takers. Now, I've had managers say, well, I've got a taker in my office. He's a really good technical person, and he kicks butt, and he kicks out all these assignments. Well, yeah, but you can hire givers that can do that, too. It just is easy to hire a giver who's technically strong and, and works hard and, and kicks out assignments, as it is a taker. It doesn't, that won't change, but, but the, the giver is just much easier to manage. The taker, anytime you tell him something he disagrees with, he's going to bring it up in office meetings, and the giver is going to look for a way to, to make things work. So the best thing to do is to start off with people who are likely to have those characteristics. Start off with people who are likely to empathize with other people, likely to be team players, likely to have a concern with customers. Start off with those people and then build from there. Uh, rather than, again, going back to worrying about how technically strong people are. Because then, you know, even if they're technically strong, they can be, they can be tough to manage. Those are great points. I, I've, I've definitely managed both and there is a huge difference. Yeah. So, right. Right. And so what part that's actually in an interviewing class that we teach is, is how to identify people who are givers versus takers. That's great. Givers tend to make much better claims professionals than takers. So just start off that way. So when you hire that employee, that's a little more green, but they have the signs of a giver. Um, I would, I would think then that's the type of person you're going to want to spend more time with continuing education or developing them. Uh, they may have the inherent traits, but then you have to teach the next pieces. You talked a lot about continuing education and in your book. Um, why do you look for that? Or why is that something that's a, one of the core characteristics that's important? Uh, people who continuously want to improve themselves, people who are looking for ways to improve 
uh, also make much better claims people than people who are always worried about being perfect. And claims is a tough job where you're never going to be right 100% of the time. But I would rather have someone who says, okay, I made a mistake, but I won't make it next time than someone who doesn't make a decision because they're too afraid of making a mistake. So the best claims people I've ever seen are people who are not afraid of failure. They're not. They don't, they're not afraid of making a mistake. Matter of fact, mistakes are an indispensable step to becoming proficient at something. And they see it that way. And, and, and those are almost always the best. Now, they're not afraid of failure, but they are afraid of something. They're afraid of mediocrity. They're afraid of being only as good as they used to be. That, this petrifies them. To be, I mean, I'm only as good as I was six months ago? Huh? What? This scares them to death. And this drives them to always want to improve. So they see making mistakes as an indispensable step to ultimately improving. And because of that, they do improve a great deal faster than the person who's worried about making a mistake. But you also need a manager that's going to endure those mistakes, right? Absolutely. Like- you need a manager who realizes, okay, this is a mistake, but it's, you know, the fact that you made the decision is good. Let's, let's make the right decision next time. But, but that's okay. Yes. So, and here's the problem. You go to most claims people, the people actually handling the files, and you ask them this, finish this sentence. The only time I see my supervisor is when blank. I make a mistake. Know what they're going to say when I make a mistake. (laughs) Right. So we live in a world that we teach people how to do better by focusing on their mistakes. That's the environment we have. So what you have to do as a manager is you have to break this idea that that they failed if they've made a mistake. They haven't failed at all. They've successfully identified a way they're not going to do it in the next, next time. <laughs> this is your success. Your success is, guess what? Now you're never going to make that mistake ever again. You're better for it. Yeah, so it does need some management support. You're right. And matter of fact, I've seen it in, in field offices where claims people refuse to make decisions on claims because if they do, guess what? They have a post-mortem meeting. You know, later, oh, yeah. hey, well, let's, let's dissect all the mistakes you made. And by the way, that's, that's the number one killer of initiative. Number one, people aren't going to take the initiative to, 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 to improve themselves if they're going to get beaten down every time they make a mistake. It's much, it's much safer just not to do anything. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I um, have seen that, and I've had a few of those throughout my life, both kinds. The, the kind that's there to help you along the way and is going to be there when you make a mistake and when you succeed. And I've had the other, the other side of that too. So, um, well, you know, I was teaching a class and, uh, asked people for, you know, I need, I need a volunteer, someone to volunteer to come up here. And, you know, most people run and hide and this one guy goes, <laughs> I'll volunteer. I said, well, why do you want to volunteer? He goes, well, my managers are here. My coworkers are here. If I do a really good job, it gives me a chance to shine. I mean, how often do I get that opportunity back in my desk? I said, yes, but what if I crack you like an egg? What if I turn you into jello up here in front of your friends and they all laugh at you? And he goes, well, then I'll probably learn something they didn't know and I'll be better off for it. Either way, I'm ahead of the game. <laughs> yeah, that's the right <laughs> adjuster Right there. That's the guy. Yeah. This guy is not focused on making mistakes. He's focused on getting better. And, you know, I actually had someone in a class one time come up to me because I mentioned that in a class. And he says, uh, comes up to break. He's all upset. He goes, well, are you saying, Mr. Van, because I don't want to volunteer you know, that uh, I can't be an awesome adjuster. Is that what you're saying? I said, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is as long as your focus is on protecting yourself rather than improving yourself, you have limited your potential. 
there is a barrier which you will not cross, even if it means you could get better. And by the way, you put that barrier there. Nobody else did. So I'm a big fan of looking at making mistakes as this is part of the process to improve. So what do you do when you're sort of in that lone wolf scenario that we described, right? And you maybe don't have the mentor or you're seeking more education, or maybe you want to broaden the lines of business that you do, or are there any resources available nowadays, you know, that even a young adjuster could reach out to? I mean, I'm talking blog here or even YouTube, or are there some things that you look at and you say, wow, these, this is, you know, disseminating some really good information out to, out to folks. I mean, including your, your organization as well. Right. Right. And uh, there are plenty of online training courses. Ours, we got four of ours, negotiation, customer service and such. And, um, you know, articles in, in trade magazines like Claims Magazine and you know, National Underwriter and all that kind of stuff. Uh, conferences, a lot of times there's, there's an online synopsis of presentations put on, you know, that, that we put in the conferences. Um, so there are lots of resources. There, I wouldn't say that there's one, oh, here, go here, and you're going to learn everything you need to know. So it's right. just a matter of being, of being interested enough to do the research. So if you're interested enough, if you believe that this is going to be your career, uh, and you do research, you will find those resources. And, and what's really incredible is how many people I've come across, they've been doing this job for, you know, 18, 19 years. And when I say, well, you know, your, your career in claims, they'll say, well, it's not really a career. It's just my job. And it just blows me away. You've been doing this 18 years. <laughs> you don't see this is your career? Nah, it's job. Let me, let me ask this as well. Like, how often do you see a claims adjuster or somebody who comes up through the adjuster uh, ranks like yourself? branch out into, uh, look, a lot of times in insurance, in all companies, we have silos, right? So the underwriters are over here, you know, actuaries, they live under the stairs like Harry Potter, right? Uh, You know, you've got the claims folks over here, but how often do you see somebody from claims then, you know, I'm not going to say break into the sweet seat, uh, C-suite rather, or, or move somewhere else, get that holistic sort of, hey, I'm a little interested in more than just claims adjusting. How, have you seen that happen? And what's, what's been successful for taking that you know, step outside of that sort of silo environment? Yeah, I've seen that. I've seen um, even adjusters say, well, I want a broad view. So I'm going to go to become an underwriter and you know, get a broad view of everything. So they you know, grow up and become a product manager, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, and I've seen uh, companies, I've been at companies where the management team actually switches roles once a year. And so they move the management team around. Um, just for that reason, but, um, you know, it's rare. It's not the rule. The rule is generally once you're in claims, you're pretty much stuck in claims and, uh, people who finally get out of claims because they've moved up high enough. That's rare too. So there are people with Glenn Shapiro, personal lines, president at Allstate, he came up through the claims world. Um, but that's rare. Usually once you're in claims, you're pretty much in claims because you're, you're so valued because of what you know, it's hard to get out of it. It's hard to go to another industry. Um, you know, and make the same money you're making, certainly, or be revered as you're revered uh, to go into something that you're, you're not, you know, familiar with. So it's, it's possible, but it's not easy. So switching gears, one of the um, Achilles heels of adjusters, in my opinion, is time management. Uh, it often seems like, you know, and, and it is hard. I think the job I heard it described to me as like spinning plates in the circus where you're constantly trying to get back to the, the first place you started without having anything smash or fall. And 
uh, it's a lot of juggling. And I remember in my first few years of being a jester, um, you know, I, I have a, a lot of gifts and talents that I came to the job with, but time management in the way that you need to have it as an adjuster was not one of them. So I remember those early struggles of trying to figure out how do I take care of what's most important? How do I prioritize? How do I get everything done? And, and, and I got there and it was a lot of work, but I think if I'd had some of the tips and tricks that you shared in the, in the book uh, about time management, it would have helped. Do you want to maybe share some of that? Sure. Uh... When I teach a time management class, almost always someone will say, Carl, how could I possibly return 50 phone calls in a day? And as soon as somebody asks me that, my response is, well, now I know your problem. You can't possibly return 50 phone calls in a day. That's not even possible. So you're trying to solve an impossible problem. So I hate to say it, but you have no hope. You see, you asked me the wrong question. The question isn't how could I return 50 phone calls? The question is, you know what it is, what's coming. What am I doing that's making me get 50 phone calls? See, that we can answer. So what we focus on are the things that the claims people tend to do that generate work. So they do certain things that actually generate phone calls and they don't even know they're doing it. So that's the first piece for sure. Then we have to teach them, okay, with what's left over, after we've saved you six, seven hours a week just by not changing something you do so you don't generate phone calls, how do you set priorities? And certain rules. One rule is... If anything is going to take less time to do now than if you have to do it later, that makes it a priority now, even if it's not as important. Because if everything you do now takes you less time than if you do it later, what will you have later? More time. Right. So it's a matter of teaching them, okay, you, you, you know things that are important, but you've got to look at priorities. So you're working on a diary. You're working to put a check together for a customer. That's important. The phone rings. The answer it? Well, you don't know which one's more important, but there's one thing about that phone call. If you let that call go into voicemail, you're going to have to call the person back. And if you don't get them, you're going to have to leave a message. They're going to call you back and you're going to play voicemail multiplier. So for every call you don't answer, on the average, you're generating three to four more phone calls later. That means that's more work. So right now you're working on something that's important, but that phone call, if you don't answer it, it's going to generate more work for you. That makes it a priority. Therefore, you pick it up as opposed to letting it go into voicemail. So those are the kinds of decisions we have to teach them how to make is, is you got to set priorities and what are the rules for priorities? And that's a simple one, okay? I can only do one thing. I can only do this or this. Well, which one of these is going to get worse? <laughs> which one of these is going to cause me trouble tomorrow if it doesn't get done today? Well, then that makes it a priority. And so, yes, there's a whole set of rules we teach them throughout the day, but that really is. The first, the first most important thing is Stop generating work for yourself. Stop creating work just by the things that you do and say. And then with what's left over, how do we prioritize it to, you know, get to get the more important things done? Do you ever get big pushback on that when you're doing the training and then say, well, if I answer that call, then I'm going to mess up what I'm working on? Yes. And so what we do is we teach them how to do that. See, a lot of people won't answer the phone because they don't like being interrupted. And so what we teach them is you got to set a very, very high priority on finishing anything you're working on. So let's say you're working on a diet. Let's say you're working on a bodily injury evaluation. Okay. The phone rings. You don't know which one's more important, the BI or the phone, but you know one thing. If you don't pick up the phone, it's more work later. So it makes a priority. You pick up the phone. Yes. How can I help you? Uh, yeah. Um, just worried. I wondered what your mailing address is. Okay. Here's your mailing address. You hang up. You go back to what you're working on. Now you get another call. Pick up that phone. While you're working on the BI, pick it up. And the person says, yeah, I want to know why the appraiser didn't put a new fender in my car. Okay, I'll tell you what. Let me call the appraiser and I'll call you back by three o'clock. Okay, good. 
hang up, put it on your to-do list, finish what you're working on, then go deal with this thing. So one of the things we teach them is always finish what you're working on before you shift gears. Don't say, okay, I'll call you right back. And now you got to call the appraiser and guess what? He's not there. And then in the meantime, now you got five different things going on. Finish what you're working on, then go deal with this fender issue. And so we have to teach them. We have to teach them not to allow themselves to be interrupted. And if they do that, they won't feel like they're being interrupted all day. And the funny thing about it is that's why people let calls go into voicemail because they don't like being interrupted. (laughs) (laughs) It just generates more work. So yes, we do have to teach them, how do I answer that phone without it feeling like it's an interruption? I've got a funny story about that. When I was a adjuster, I I always, and I came to this conclusion before I'd read your book, but I just knew if I um, answered the phone, I had less work. So the phone would go and it was ringing. And I I was talking to this injured worker's wife who called me frequently. And we had a pretty good relationship. She's from a rural part of the country and she could just get going, like talking and talking and talking for very long periods of time. And just after I said hello, the phone rang rang, and I could see another call was going in. And I thought, I know her well enough. I'm going to ask her just to hold for a minute so I can grab this other one and come right back. So I I take care of the other thing, figure out what that's about, pop back maybe 30 seconds later. She's still talking. She she (laughs) had not stopped talking that entire time. She just kept going as if I had been on the phone the whole time. I just picked right up and... uh, uh, <laughs> I got lucky on that one. I know she's an interesting lady. So, anyway, <laughs> I think she was upset because she'd been storing her husband's work comp checks in a coffee cup or coffee jar, and somehow lost it. And she didn't know over a six month period of time which checks were lost. You know, she just knew she threw a few of them in there for a rainy day. <laughs> so, so, so it was a little bit of work to figure that out. Well, the funny thing about time management, the other thing that comes up quite a bit is a lot of times we assume people are in a hurry. And so someone calls up and says, hey, I'm upset. I want, to, I want the answer to this. That doesn't mean they're in a hurry. So rather than say, okay, I'll call you right back. And of course, even if you call them back in 10 minutes, it won't be fast enough to let them know, you know what? I want to make sure I get this right. Uh, what, could I call you back by three? Fine. Call me back by three. Now you got four hours to play with to get this done. You know, I mean, just because people are upset doesn't mean they're in a hurry. And a lot of times claims people in order to do a good job, will put pressure on themselves to get things done faster than they can accomplish. And it goes back to customer service. You know, a lot of people think that you have to be fast in customer service. You don't have to be fast. You just have to be faster than the customer expects. <laughs> so you could tell a customer, I'll call you back by three and call it by two. And that's better than telling them, I'll call you right back and call them 20 minutes later because they're expecting a call in 10 minutes. So you, you don't have to kill yourself all the time running around being fast. If you really want to improve customer service, just set people's expectations and give yourself a break. If you think something's going to take two hours, tell them four. If you think something's going to take two days, tell them three. I mean, most of the time, customers don't know what to expect until you tell them what to expect. So give yourself a break. Stop putting that kind of pressure on yourself. That's great. So when we're talking about one of the other principles you talked about characteristics was the desire for success. And we've talked about that some already, you know, you, you, when you were talking about givers, you're talking about, you know, the type of person who wants to help people and wants to be successful. Can you, uh, going back to the initiative one, this seems like this could be a little bit difficult to cultivate. How do you, how do you as a manager cultivate a desire for success? Yeah, that's a little bit more complicated. And for sure, you're better off starting with someone who wants to be successful, but uh, someone who's willing to accept feedback. 
Um, you know, because what you don't want is you don't want someone whose desire to be successful blinds them that they won't accept any feedback because then they think it pushes them backwards. So yes, that's a little bit, that's a little bit more difficult, but what you have to do is you have to find out what people themselves desire. What is it they want to do? Do they want to move into management? They want to be technical experts. You know, what is it that they want? And then of course, give them enough rewards. So they have a desire to get those rewards, but they have to be achievable. They, you know, you have to give somebody a goal uh, that that's achievable that they can see is realistic for them to get. I mean, you can't, you can't motivate me to buy a lottery ticket because I might win. Uh, Cause I'm not going to, <laughs> I know I could, but I'm not going to, so I'm not going to buy a lottery ticket in order to win. Cause it's not going to happen. So you have to have something that motivates people enough for the desire to do an outstanding job. And, and it has to be, it has to be something that's meaningful to them, but you're, you're obviously much better off starting with someone who has the desire to do an excellent job. Now you can find that out sometimes in an interview. So you ask someone a simple question. You say, okay, the, the next 10 people that go by my office, I want you to rank yourself. Where do you rank? 10 being perfect, the best, one being the worst. Where do you rank yourself against the next 10 people? Pick any criteria you want, okay? And you tell me where you rank yourself. Now, let's say the person says, well, I'm 10. You don't even know who these people are, but you're already at 10? Yes. I got to tell you, I'd stay away from that person because their ego is so big. Even if they're technically strong, they're not going to accept any feedback. They're going to they're gonna question every decision you make that they disagree with. And they're the pain in the butt to manage. Now, let's say somebody says, oh, I'm a seven, I'm an eight, I'm a nine. What that person is telling you is I'm above average. I see myself above average, but I'm not perfect. There could be somebody who knows more than me. See, and those are the people I hire. Now, the, the only difference between the nine and the seven is the guy who's a nine is a little bit more conceited than the seven. Okay. But other than that, <laughs> the same. but what if somebody says I'm a five, I'm a six. Think about that. You told the person you can pick any criteria you want, and they still said I'm a six. What does that person tell you about how they see themselves? I'm average. I'm average. That's how I see myself. My lot in life. You told them you could pick any criteria you want, and they still said I'm a five or a six. That tells you something about that person. They don't have a desire for excellence. They have a desire for mediocrity. And as a matter of fact, if you tell that person who sees themselves, I'm average, oh, by the way, you're doing a really great job, you know what'll happen to their performance? It goes down. I know that blows your mind, but it goes down because they don't see themselves as being outstanding. They see themselves as average. That's their lot in life. It's their attitude that's driving the performance. So one of the other books I wrote, Attitude of Building the 80-20 Rule, people's performance is 80% their attitude. If their attitude is, you know what, I'm here to help people, then that's what they'll do. They'll help people. They'll, they'll say words that are consistent. If their attitude is, I'm good, but I want to get better, they'll accept mistakes and they'll take the risks in order to prove themselves. So again, it comes back to attitude. So the, the desire for excellence uh, is a tough one. But again, it comes if you can find out what, what it is that people want and you teach them by doing a good job, they will get that. Uh, they can develop it. So when, when you're dealing with claims, and we talked a little bit about this with the customer service angle, where do interpersonal skills fall into uh, being a successful adjuster? Very highly because it's completely tied to empathy and customer service. You got to be able to say things the right way. So like I said, instead of saying it sounds like you're confused, maybe let me help clear this issue up for you. Instead of if you don't sign the form, we won't pay you. If you would sign the form, I can help make sure you get paid. It's, you're saying the exact same thing, but you're saying it in a way the customer could understand. 
And so interpersonal skills are very important. I was monitoring a call recently and an adjuster calls up, it was at workers' comp, calls up the injured worker, hey, I need you to fill out these forms and sign this you know, medical authorization form. And the injured worker says, I'm not signing that form. And the adjuster said, why? It's not complicated. Now, when they ask why it's not complicated, what do they just call this person? Stupid, right? <laughs> why aren't you filling that out? It's not complicated. And so even though they were trying to be helpful, they said it the wrong way. I was monitoring a bodily injury adjuster who's, who's, who's talking to somebody who's trying to calm the guy down. The guy's getting upset. He goes, well, look, sir, I don't know if there's any reason to get excited over this. Now, when he said that, I don't know if there's any reason to get excited. What did he just say to this person? You have no reason to be upset. Now, you tell someone who's upset that they have no reason to be upset. Does that calm them down? That adjuster, and he'd been doing his job nine years, nine-year claims adjuster. In nine years, he hadn't figured out that he's better off saying, sir, I understand completely why you're frustrated. Tell people why you understand why they're frustrated. They calm down. Tell them you have no idea why they're upset. They get annoyed. You know, do whatever you want to do. The point is to be able to communicate to people and say what you mean to say. Make sure what you said was what you meant it is, is a, a powerful skill. And, and that's very, very closely tied to customer service and empathy, which again is tied to attitude. So people have a positive attitude about the customer. I want to help this person because that's the business I'm in. They will falter much less because they're saying things that are consistent with what they mean. So have you ever run into, and this just got me thinking, I've, I've heard this said before where uh, people in claims leadership, not in the company I'm in now, but I've heard it said, well, I mean, we don't want to give them everything that they want. If we're customer service oriented, then we're going to get taken advantage of and we have to draw the line. I don't know if you've ever heard that thought process. Uh, and, and I'm, and I'm seeing some changes in that throughout the industry, but I still think that that's still out there in some pockets. Well, there's no doubt about it. And there's a belief, which is incorrect, that customer service, good customer service means you pay everything or that if you don't pay somebody, you delivered bad customer service. And that's right. faulty. You can deliver outstanding customer service and still let somebody know why you're not going to pay them. Now you can say, well, look, we don't know that. Or you can say, you know what? We'd love to pay that. We can't. And here's why. Again, you can, you can deliver great customer service. As a matter of fact, I work with one carrier. Their, their form letters, this is a form letter. When they were denying their claim, they would say, we're sorry we weren't able to help you. In their letter on, because we're not paying you. See, I just see that as completely wrong. You have helped them. You, you took the law support. You investigated it. You've explained that it's not within the policy. You've helped this person. You've done what you're supposed to do. So to tie in, we couldn't help you because we didn't pay your claim, I see that as completely wrong. So even if, as a matter of fact, maybe even, maybe even especially if you're going to deny someone's claim, you can still provide outstanding customer service. Even if they didn't get what they wanted, they were still treated with respect by a knowledgeable person who cares about doing a good job. Um, they can accept it a little bit better than someone who's just dismissing them. So even especially when, when we can't pay someone, we can't give them what they want, that's where customer service becomes important. So, you know, just to hammer that a little more, I, you know, I was thinking the same thing, Greg, uh, you know, we want to teach people, we want to even procure the people who have these empathetic skill sets, but then, you know, we also need a healthy dose of cynicism, right? Because we, we work in an industry where there's fraud, fraud abounds, right? I mean, um, you see it a lot. So is that, does that cynicism only come from priors, right? Or, Hey, I had this claim 
you know, a while ago where something like this happened, this is hitting some red flags. How do you balance the both, right? A healthy dose of empathy with a healthy dose of cynicism. One of my favorite sayings is trust everybody, but cut the cards. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. You know, uh, I was monitoring this adjuster and he, he says he wants to take a statement from somebody and he goes, okay, I need to take your statement. Please try telling the truth. And that was his intro. Please try. <laughs> now, why did he say that? I, I know why. Because his attitude is people are trying to cheat me. And so when I was talking to him, I said, well, you're right. There are some people who are trying to cheat you, but not everybody's trying to cheat you. So to treat everybody like they're a liar when some people lie, you know, I just don't think it's the right approach. Just assume they're telling you the truth until something comes up that shows that they're not. But to start off with, I'm going to make sure no one lies to me, then all you're going to do is drag everybody else down with you. So yes, that cynicism does happen because every once in a while, we do get taken advantage of and it doesn't feel good, tastes bad. But we just got to remember not to take it out on our other customers. That's a great point. So I know another thing that's been in the media a lot has been, the they call it the silver tsunami. All of the people who are about to retire in uh, workers' comp and in claims and uh, all of them, really. Uh, you know, I went to a vice president meeting in our home office with, with 50 some different vice presidents of claims. And I think I was one of the few that still had some hair left. So it, I was going to say, you got some silver up there too, but I, I got some silver, but I still have the hair, right? So it's just a matter of time. But I, I tell you, there's a, a lot of people who are in leadership roles uh, who are going to be retiring over the next five to 10 years. And so when you, what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's looking to enter this industry, Carl? Um, the overall advice is remember the, remember the industry you're in. You're in, the, you're in the business of helping people. That's what we do. And we're here to help people and focus on that. I would also tell them your coworkers are your customers too. Don't think it's just the insurance or the claimants or the injured workers, your coworkers. These are your customers too. These are the people who are going to give feedback that, you know, get you promoted in other areas. And so that's why givers are important for teamwork because givers tend to help out. Somebody else is out of the office, they'll, they'll return their phone calls. Why? Because, you know, they're customers too. And so if you see your coworkers, customers and the outside people, uh, you're going to do the right things. They're going to, that are going to make you successful. And uh, you, you'll learn the technical stuff along the way. You'll learn, this, you'll learn that statute doesn't apply anymore and this new statute comes along. That will come up in a, in a legal meeting. So I wouldn't concern myself too much with, with that. I would just try to remember we're here to help people. That's a great point. The best teams I've been on have been teams where everybody's pulling for each other. And that's, a, that's the kind of place where it's fun to go to work because you know that the people on your right side and your left side are, have your back and are there to help you. It goes a really long way. Um, so Carl, if, if people want to... Uh, Look into your trainings. I know we're in COVID world where some people still aren't able to travel. Uh, what are ways that they can reach out to you? What are ways that they could get involved if they wanted to do training with your organization or, or uh, with your staff? Well, our, all of our courses are now webinar as well. So any course that's in our catalog, I think there's 30 or something of them. Every one of them can now, are now being delivered webinars. So we're delivering webinars every single week now to different carriers. Um, and there's, there are a lot of carriers where it's going to be that way permanently because they've already put all their staff out in the field and they're not going to bring them back, you know? So I believe virtual and uh, training is, 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 is for sure a, a big element of the future of the training. But um, 
Our website is insuranceinstitute.com, www.insuranceinstitute.com. You can order a catalog. And uh, we also also have a several locations on our website where I can direct you to them, where you can actually view samples of those webinars. So you can view a sample of the customer service webinar. You can view a sample of the time management negotiation. The best thing to do is just email me at carlvan at insuranceinstitute.com. Carlvan at insuranceinstitute.com. And just tell me what you think you might be interested in, and I can direct you. Awesome. Like I said, any, any course that we teach in person, we now also teach webinar. Excellent. Well, I can definitely attest that you're, you're doing some great things. I think a lot of those tools would help a lot of adjusters out there. And uh, so again, if you haven't taken a look at the book or checked out the resources, I encourage you to do it. They do great work. So want to thank you again, Carl. I appreciate you being our guest today. My pleasure. That's it for today. Uh, well, we hope you'll join us for future podcasts releasing every two weeks on Monday. And if you can't get enough adjusted in your life, uh, then you can check out our adjusted blog from our resident blogger, Natalie Dangles. And that drops on the opposite Monday of the podcast. So it can be found at www.burkindcomp.com. And if you liked your listen, please give us a review on Apple's podcast platform. Special thanks to Cameron Runyon for our excellent music. And if you need more music in your life, please contact him directly by locating him, uh, his email in our show notes. And thanks again for all your support. And remember, do right, think differently, and don't forget to care. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.